The cats I interview have been making a living on and off the bandstand for the last half century. They have dealt with good leadership and bad. They have come to different understandings of what love is. They have overcome a lot of adversity in their lives, and they are adept at playing all musics. For me nowadays, labels and names have really gotten in the way of our ability to create communal spiritual music. The bean counters want to pigeonhole and brand music. The Cats have had an impact on so many records that my generation and older generations have lived off for years. They play little parts and serve the song as conduits for information from the heavens. For the most part, the Cats had a chance to play with the original masters of the music and learn to get out of their own way to become part of the musical conversation. One thing I've realized and been humbled by is the opportunity that has been given to me to gain knowledge and wisdom from the musicians whose tales I share with people in all parts of the world via the internet. Call it mass distance education, if you will. I have the opportunity to talk with individuals who have been on this earth longer than myself, have experienced societal shifts, and have invented and reinvented themselves in different musical settings in different parts of the country. Ellie Khan, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you. That was quite an introduction. <laughs> you know, I, I realized that... Um, I really wanted to talk to you about, before your professional career started, the first time that you started to really hear the word rock being described as a type of music. Um, probably out of the mouth of Chuck Berry when I was a little kid. Okay. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music, you know? You know, it was funny because I was... Um, Talking to, uh, I did an interview with with Artie Kornfeld yesterday, and he said that, you know, for a minute <clears throat> that there was, uh, trying to look here, he said that um, Alan Freed came up with the saying, rock and roll is here to stay, and Morris Le Le Levy, or Le Levy put an injunction on that, saying no one could use rock and roll in any song, so it took about 12 years for someone to file a lawsuit and win. You know what I'm trying to get at is that, I just I come from the Duke Ellington School of Music, and at 45 years old, it just drives me insane about the incessant branding and labeling of music. And I just wonder if that were you obsessed with labels as a kid, or did that? Uh, no, I just I just loved the music. I was unaware of who wrote it or who was playing on it. It was just uh, you know I was just enthralled from a really early age. Um, I used to, I had a little crystal radio, the, the shape of a, like a four inch rocket and the nose cone had a little dial and that's, uh, you know, that's how you found like the one or two radio stations that was strong enough to uh, pick up and I would just hide under my sheets at night pretending to be asleep, just absolutely loving every note I heard. <laughs> that story has been told to me many times by many people. Uh, uh -huh. Who was it? Harry Abramson? What were the bleed through stations you were listening to? Uh, actually, I was in Boston, and it was the the disc jockey was Arnie Woo Woo Ginsburg. Oh, here we go, dude! Who was it's... my absolute hero? Ar Arnie Woo Woo Ginsburg. This is Arnie so beautiful, Woo -Woo Ginsburg, man! Yeah. Jesus, my God! Look him up. He was a crazy man. And what what station was he on? Well, he was on, first of all, he was on um, WBOS, 1600, and then 
I guess they changed their format, and he went to WMEX. Can you talk a little bit about at night the format? I mean, was he? And I guess it it goes back to this idea of, you know, this is before really like free form radio or album oriented rock. I'm just curious about the variety of and the and the different kinds of tunes. Even though you you didn't care who it was, what looking back, what kind of variety were you getting a chance to listen to? Ah, uh, well, uh, you know, there was a lot of stuff like you know Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis, and then a lot of you know doo-wop songs by groups that sort of came and went. Very few had of them had more than one or two hits, and then they disappeared. Um, but then there was a little bit of country crossover mixed in, and you know I did I didn't know what a country song was or what it wasn't. <laughs> Wait, what about you know, what just, about jazz? I mean, Boston was a bastion of of heart of bop music. Was there jazz being going on? There was jazz going on. I was not really much aware of it until maybe I was twelve or so, eleven, and my I had an older brother who was a big jazz fan. So all of a sudden started listening to Miles and Coltrane and Charlie Parker, you know, Stan Getz. Were you, were, I mean, were you, I guess this, there's a kind of a double, two, 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 uh, a question that like at, at that point, were you at 12 years old, um, like, were you able, there was a peanut gallery, you know, where cats could go in and even if they were underage, there'd be like a, a cordoned off section where you could get a Coke and, you know, you watch Dizzy. And this is at Birdland or even at the Blackhawk in San Francisco. Was there a place like that in Boston? Because to me, like, it, you know, kids were, kids were in the clubs when you were coming up. Well, I, I sure wasn't. You know, I, I don't think, <laughs> no, I don't think I went to a concert of any kind until I was probably 14 or 15. I think the first big concerts I ever went to were at the Newport Folk Festival. I went two or three times. That was your first, those were your first exposure. I guess that was probably, I mean, were you at the, uh, the legendary Lomax, um, uh, fisticuffs with, uh, with Dylan's manager over a drum kit on the stage? You know what? I was at, the Newport Folk Festival that weekend, and that show was Sunday night, and I was gone by then. <laughs> no, you know, but what I did see, which I thought was amazing, well, first of all, I saw the Love and Spoonful. It was the first rock band I'd ever seen play live. And there they were at the Newport Folk Festival. And in the one of the afternoons, they had big concerts at night, and in the afternoon, a lot of the same performers who would play at night would play you know, workshops in front of much smaller audiences where everybody would sit on a bale of hay. And I, you know, who knows? This is a 58-year-old memory, but... I love this. I kind of remember um, an afternoon concert with Richie Havens and Tim Harden and Eric Anderson. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? No, all playing together. I'd never heard of any of them before. And Harvey Brooks, bass player. Yeah, a dear friend, yeah. A dear, unbelievable, yeah. And my recollection, at least, is that he, you know, played with all of them. And uh, I'd never heard of him before, never seen him before, and I just was blown away. Because I had sort of, like, lost my taste for rock and roll in the early 1960s, because it just got really cheesy from my perspective. 
and so I became a big folk music fan. And then when the two art forms merged, you know, when Dylan, basically Dylan did it in one fell swoop, and all of a sudden, just two kinds of music that I loved came together, and I was in heaven. That, you know, it's such an honor to talk to Elliot Kahn here. I mean, I, okay, so I want, to, I want to be clear. I mean, you were pretty young at, in the late 50s, but I do want you to t- talk to the audience about... Um, the reason rock music got real cheesy was because of, of that payola scandal where you had, uh, at least that was one of the factors, where you had, you know, them whitewashing all this raunchy R&B music or rock music. and Well, that's certainly part of it. I mean, you have, I'm teaching a rock and roll history class right now in Asheville, North Carolina. And um, one of the things I did was talk about white cover records of R&B classics I love and this. Please talk about a, this. Yeah. There was a particularly, uh, Pat Boone had, you know, in addition to being a crooner, sort of did white cover versions of a bunch of R&B songs. And he's got a particularly egregious version of Long Tall Sally, <laughs> where they, you know, where he, he changed the lyrics because at, at its cleanest, Long Tall Sally is about infidelity. And it, it may well be about transgender stuff sure um un- unclear but at, at the very least it's about marital infidelity and he changed the lyrics to take that theme totally out of the song you know there's no gonna tell aunt mary about uncle john nope gone so you know that probably had part to do with it but then i think it just sort of ran out of steam for a couple of years and all of a sudden you have you know little peggy marsh doing I love him, I love him, and where he goes, I'll follow, being number one songs. Can you talk a little bit, like, the just for the audience, I mean, the I, you teach this, do you, do you talk about the payola scandal? Uh, just a little bit. Mostly I talk about the music. I dig, but I'm saying, like, what was the catalyst for, the idea was that, whether it was Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, or, you know, Fats Do- little, little Richard or Fats Domino, I mean, was it again just the idea of you know this 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 sort of thing in our country about you know we can't let people of color get too out in front here and we have to whitewash the music i mean i guess it's just to me i little richard found god at that time elvis went to the army it was a vapid time david grisman said the same thing to me but it is it, it, it is I mean, I, I feel like this is an obvious answer, but was there a racial component to that? Um, oh, undoubtedly. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to think about what the record companies were thinking at the time, which is that there are certain radio stations, probably especially in the South, that won't play records by black artists. So we're going to, like, homogenize it somewhat and make it more acceptable. And we'll also do, like, white sanitized versions of country records, too, where the singer isn't, doesn't have a twang in his voice. So there was a ballad called Young Love that was done by an artist named Sonny James. And about a week after that one started hitting the radio stations, out came a version by Tab Hunter, who was this, you know, incredibly good-looking young would-be movie star who sang like a crooner, like Perry Como. So they put that one out, and it was an even bigger record than Sonny James' version. So it wasn't totally racial. It right. was a question of how do we 
shoehorn something into a container that's somehow more acceptable to a broad base of white America. Um, <sighs> and in terms of folk music, before Dylan merged the two styles, um, was it uh, the Kingston Trio? What were some of the, you know, so many of those cats, and I, I don't, you know, I mean, I, it, I was born long after they ever, you know, got into, were on the bandstand, but the thing that mar marvels me, I don't care if it's Pete Seeger or the Kingston Trio, I mean, those guys gave back to the music community. The, the Kingston Trio had, like, this incredible studio that they that they bought and and in San Francisco and they were just like p paying it forward. Did that come across? I mean, that sort of generosity and spirit in the folk scene was that appealing? Or, I mean, it wasn't like they were like you know, it wasn't like you know, riffology or like chops. You know, it was just like honest folk singing, great songs. But did you pick up on that sort of spirit of generosity and and playing it, paying it forward? Um, I totally did, and one of the interesting things to me, you know, just thinking forward a little bit, I'm just going to mention two artists. One of them is Tom Rush. Yes. Folk singer from Boston. I, one of my heroes. Um, yeah, I love him, dude. Yeah. The first time, he had one album with co three covers by songwriters I had never heard of before, and one of them was Joni Mitchell, and one of them was James Taylor, wow. and one of them was Jackson Brown. And I remember looking at the liner notes, which I did religiously, and looking and going, I've never heard of any of these people before. <laughs> I, wonder if, I wonder if they've done anything else. Um, that, was his first, that was his first album? That was his first album? Really? That was his first album? No, out? it wasn't his first album. Okay, yeah. It was his third or fourth Third or fourth album, got it, yeah. Yeah. Um, Judy Collins, who just whose voice I totally fell in love with, um, she did a version of Turn, 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 and one of the studio musicians in that session was this guy named Jim McGuinn. Wow. Soon to become Roger McGuinn, who probably heard that song for the first time in that recording session. It stuck in the back of his mind. So, and that, and, and that speaks to the sort of sharing of music. Like that was the sort of aesthetic of the folk scene was like to be inspired by other artists, play their tunes, yeah turn them upside down and ins I mean the meters did that in New Orleans with Stephen Stills tunes. I mean they turn but they huh? s slow the tempo down. But you know just popped into my head. I I mean did was Elliot Kahn toiling around Auburn 47, Club 47 Cambridge. Uh, yes. I I need you to talk a little bit about you know cuz like Peter Rowan was talking to me about, you know, there'd be you know uh guys with conga drums showing up. I mean, Joan Baez was there. Obviously, it was sort of, it became a folk club, but before, it was actually like a jazz trio. Play. Can you talk a little bit about the vibe there and, and ultimately? Um, great vibe, but I'm going to talk about something just a smidge different. Please. There was a club in Hyannis, Massachusetts on Cape Cod, of all places. Oh, my God. In a little A-frame, there was a fast food, you know, fried clam place during the day, and at night, a folk music club except the people there were really good. <laughs> and at one time, there was a, a jug band playing and just a bunch of people mostly playing covers. But in the jug band was a drummer who became um, Country Joe and the Fish's drummer, Greg Dewey. Um, Whoa. The guy that became the first, you know, 
lead guitarist in the Youngbloods, and two guys who formed a group called Orpheus that had a couple of hits. Yes, do we hold on for a sec? Wait, wait, wait. Who was the? Who's the lead guitar cat? It wasn't Banana, right? Who? No, it wasn't Banana. It was. Uh, oh, uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, it just popped into my head. And then Jerry, it, Jerry Corbett. Wow, you're telling. What was the name of this clam shack? It was called the Carousel, I think. Out in Cape and, Cod. Yeah, and I was just learning how to play the guitar, and I would go every night I could at, with a little like a piece of paper. Like a little, you know, spiral notebook, and I would just sort of look and go, "Holy shit!" and write things down. Oh, look at this. How do you do that? And write it down. Um. So I, you know, I was enthralled. So I want to, I want to get your definition. There was a, you're saying there was a trap drummer in that band, in that band, the the original Country Joe band, but the guy was playing in a jug band with a with a with a trap. He was set. playing washboard. He's playing washboard. Yeah. So you have like a washboard on, you know, a string that you have like in front of you and you put thimbles on your fingers and you play rhythm. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, my favorite, I mean, the cat that James Jamerson loved to play with the most in Detroit was a guy named Washboard Willie, who was apparently a uh-huh. le- you know, legendary cat. But I mean, can you talk about um, your, when you, what 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 is the uh, the sort of aesthetics in your mind of you said you saw the love and spoonful and that was the first rock show you saw live yeah now when you say now what made it rock and not i mean sebastian was as as folky as you could get so what made it well all of a sudden he had a he had a drum kit and an electric bass player and an electric guitar player and he came out playing auto harp at the very beginning, do you leave in magic had, you know, an auto harp in it. And that's what he was playing. So rock is basically, you would say plugging. I mean, it sounds self-explanatory, but plugging in is it, it, and having, uh, and having a drum kit. You think that those are yeah. the, the, the keys? Uh, well, and that, and that beat, you know, right. Like something with a backbeat, you know, with the accents on the twos and the fours. Did you get a chance to see, uh, anyone like uh, before you left Boston? Did you see people like John Coltrane play or, or Miles? No. So no, you, I think, yeah. interestingly enough, I think that the first like really good jazz group I ever saw was Weather Report. Oh, do you, wait! I mean, the, like the original, like the original cat, the the yeah, with Joe Zavanul. Yeah, this was probably when Wayne, I guess Wayne Shorter was in it. This was maybe seventy three or so. You right? I'm just wondering if Miroslav Vichus was playing the original because uh, that was. I mean, for a minute when they first started, they were playing places like after the Gaslight went from like you know folk house, it became like. They were playing like acoustic, like Weather Report played the Gaslight in like seventy one, seventy two, which is just so hard for me to even fathom. But so, so I mean, ultimately, you were learning guitar. You were going to the Clam Shack. You had your notebook, um, and you did you want to pursue a career? No, as, no, no. I never, I never even thought about it. <laughs> Seriously, music was just something I loved. 
and it was an avocation for me. And I loved singing. I loved singing harmonies with with people who had good ears. Um, and that's what I did. And then, you know, basically the first time I ever played in a professionally in a band was Sean O'Neill. Right. And this is fast. So you, I mean, you, the impetus to move, what was the impetus to move to New York? Uh, we're going to college. At Columbia. At Columbia. Yeah. Okay. So when you, and you were, you sort of went in with a sort of a, a did you had declared major or you just sort of an open, you kind of went I in? I had about four or five different majors in the two and a half years I was there. I was a terrible student. Well, now clearly you weren't if you got into Columbia, but I mean, you know, the... the... No, no, I mean, I, look, I, I'm talking about, the, in terms of the product I produced, I was a terrible student when I was there, so... <laughs> right. Um, so I, I dropped out after just a little bit less than two and a half years under both academic and disciplinary probation. So that was that was my double major was academic and disciplinary probation. <laughs> but I started out as a French major because my mother was a French teacher. That's that seemed like a fun thing to do. And then I was an English major until I had to read Beowulf. And then I was a what else? Jesus, I was a government major. And then finally, I decided to be a music major because if I couldn't enjoy that, then I clearly didn't belong in school. And it turned out that I who really didn't belong in school. So, I want to read you this uh, quote from a cat. Um, you, you probably have crossed paths with him. His name is Paul Lennard. He said, um, "You know, he 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 wound up on. I wound up on a scholarship at Columbia in New York City. Coming from Pittsburgh, the whole world opened up to me. I played ball for about two years and injured my knee, and that was the end of that." I remember seeing Allen Ginsberg walking across campus for the first time with a full beard, a three-piece suit, and red sneakers. <laughs> I remember going with a guitar friend of mine to see the doors at a club called Ondine under the 59th Street Bridge. There was nobody mm -hmm. in the room. It was the two of us at midnight. Another time I went to the Cheetah and the Grateful Dead were playing. There were maybe a hundred people there. When they took a break, Jerry Garcia walked to the bar and my buddy and I walked over and bought him a beer. I was on the 8th floor of Hamilton Hall at Columbia, and one day I'm walking down the hall, and I hear this guitar music in an adjacent room. Every day I'd walk past his room, and I'd hear the guitar. Turned out it was David Bromberg. He was cutting class. Right, right. Where did you fit? That sounds like right in your pocket of time there. Uh, I, yeah, I, I started there in 1966, and there was some good music that came to Columbia. The, mo the Mothers of Invention played there. In '66, um, wow! Yeah, the great, the Grateful Dead played a free concert in the you know the middle of the campus quadrangle. Wow! So you, so can you talk a little bit about? I mean, ultimately, you were not a not a great student, but the distractions of the culture were everywhere. I mean, where where? Uh, yeah. Who did you meet at at Columbia? that ultimately led you into, or did you meet cats at Columbia that led you into Sean and I? Um, well, I was in a, an acapella group called the Columbia Kingsmen, which is sort of like the chess club, you know, you come oh, this is fantastic. Yeah. Graduate as a senior. <laughs> and that's what turned into Sean and I. And basically what happened is that we decided to do a, a concert, concert is the wrong word, to do a little show in a, cafeteria of 50s time and early 60s time and unbeknownst to us 
the older brother of one of the guys in the group went around to a bunch of the fraternity houses where the athletes lived. Sure. And even at Columbia, these, you know, very big people. And um, he went around with a leaflet that said, 50s concert, come as you were. And <laughs> you know, pretty much the entire football team showed up, you know, dressed like 50s hoodlums and very drunk and very scary and very belligerent. And that's where the idea sort of came from, which is let's take this music and let's put what those guys were like in the audience. Let's stage that. And so that was the, that was the initial concept. <clears throat> so getting past the, did that group, did you wind up getting other like coffee house gigs or did, can you talk a little oh, bit? No, of this, this happened really quickly. We did two or three shows in the spring on campus, you know, for gradually bigger and bigger audiences. Unbelievable. And, and then we decided, Hey, let's be musicians for the summer. Like that will be our summer job rather than going home and washing cars or whatever we would have been doing. Um, and let's be musicians for the summer. And we went around and talked ourselves into a bunch of clubs. And one of them was a place called Steve Paul's, the scene. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. None of us had a clue. I'd been there once to see the Blues Project. and But I had no idea that it was sort of a late-night hangout for, you know, for big-time musicians and their friends and A&R people and stuff. So we played there for two weeks. And Jimi Hendrix was there every night. And I remember one evening... I mean, I was just sort of learning how to play the electric guitar and not very comfortable with it, so mostly looking down. Right. And I remember looking out, and there was a woman standing on, you know, one of these little round bar stools, jumping up and down and ripping out her hair and screaming like we were the Beatles. And I squinted, and I went, holy shit, that's Janis Joplin. Oh, my God. And it was. And Eric Clapton was there, and... You know, they started telling their friends and their managers, and all of a sudden, there was just, every night, there'd be this outpouring of heavy people from the music business there. And one of Bill Graham's people came and booked us into the Fillmore, and somebody from William Morris came down, and all of a sudden, they were our agents, and, you know, I think either Michael Lang or Artie Kornfeld came down, and... Yeah, I'll talk to Artie about that. Wait, hold, uh, hold on. You're glossing over this. What was it that made you guys, um, you know, uh, separate? I mean, wh- the bills that you were on at the Fillmore, for instance, I mean, what made you different than, you know, psychedelic skiffle bands? I mean, clearly it was uh, the, vocal, the vocal stuff. And But were you, were you basically just sort of... Um, you weren't trying to make hits, right? I mean, it just kind of came. No, it, no we were, what we were trying to do was serve people up a version of the fifties, which was like a little hype, you know, a little bit hyped up. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of give them the songs the way they remembered them, maybe more than the way they really were. And with a, you know, with just a very, High energy, frenetic show. <laughs> so, when you seem a little more hyped up, just 
by energy or because it was energy like energy yeah. and like the, the tempos were sped up and uh you know we had like three guys in golden may suits dancing i mean it was just for 1969 it was insane <laughs> this is blowing my mind i mean so were you on with like Iron Butterfly? Like what was the, what were some of the, like the the Fillmore in New York? I mean. The first time we played the Fillmore, Ken Heat was headline. Oh my God. And Three Dog Night was the support band. And Santana opened the shows. It was their first time in New York and their record had, their first album had just come out. Wow. And it was going to be a number one album a few months later, but at that point, you know, nobody really heard of them. And the first night we went on second. And the second night, Three Dog Night realized they really shouldn't follow us. And so we went on third. And the second night, I remember Ken Heat came out and said, how do you follow to the audience? How do you follow that? That is remarkable. I mean, going to play a couple songs and then we're going to get off. How how can you possibly follow that? So that's pretty crazy. This is a band that's at this point has been together for three months. I want to know the original members of. I'm I'm looking here. Tell me the original members of the group. Okay, well, it's twelve of us. So let me see if I can do it. I'm looking at it. So this is a challenge. I'm looking at him. So I'll help you if you need it. Yeah. So Rob Leonard. Yep. Who ended up? Who was in Golden May suit? Who ended up as a um, linguistics professor? In <laughs> Lead vocals on Teen Angel, yeah. Yeah, um, Scott Powell, right. who is now a uh, orthopedic surgeon oh in Los my Angeles. God, and if I'm not genius mistaken, cats, man! Everybody in this band. <laughs> yeah, um, a guy named Denny Green, now passed away, who uh, ended up as a law professor. Okay, so there's that three. So then there's me as four. Uh, Bruce Clark was the bass player, who's a English professor at University of Texas, El Paso, maybe. Holy cow! Oh. Cur- currently, uh, currently, currently. Oh my god! Um, Unbelievable. Uh, Joe Whitkin was the keyboard player, who's now a retired um, emergency room doctor. How are we doing here? Dude, Jack you're doing fantastic. Well, first of all, you haven't right? mentioned my dear, a dear friend who I just did uh, my second interview with, but and, and he also sends his love as Henry Gross. Oh, Henry Gross. Well, Henry, of course, is still a musician. He's still rocking. And still rocking. And after I quit playing with Sean and I, I played with him for about a year. Wow. I, I'm also, I'm going to help you out here. Uh, uh, Alan Cooper. Alan Cooper quit to go to Yale Divinity School. What is going on? The last time I talked to him was a Old Testament scholar and a religion professor at the Union Theological Seminary and the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City. Oh my God. And who else we got? We got Marcelino, dude. Jocko is still a musician. Dude. Donnie York. Donnie York and Joe Whitkin. Yeah. Joe Whitkin is a, you know, was an emergency room doctor. Oh, that's right. Whitkin was emergency room. Richard Jaffe. Richard Jaffe is a uh, now retired lawyer in New York. And Dave Garrett. Oh, this is a good story. Dave Garrett's father knew somebody at William Morris. I think we were neighbors or something. Right. And asked him 
to, you know, send somebody down to see us at this club, the scene. And we met in an alley behind the club <laughs> between sets. And we had just completely knocked the place out. You know, so there's Hendrix and Janis Joplin, all these people screaming, people, you know, offering us record deals on the spot. Unbelievable. And this agent looks at us and says, gentlemen, I have nothing but bad news for you and proceeds to tell us why there's no chance we're going to succeed. What did he and say? Just, you know, you know, you, you got like, you got like legendary already established musicians going nuts, but he's like yeah. being a wet blanket. And he's just like the stone face. Yeah. There's just, there's no way what you should just forget about it. <laughs> so cut to like about 20 years later and Dave Carrot's father is dying and has his son come in to see him and says, Dave, I have a confession to make. It's that when I sent, you know, when I had Nat Lefkowitz send somebody down to see you guys play, right. I asked him, send one of your agents down and tell them, you know, that nothing's going to happen because I didn't want you to be a rock and roll musician. I wanted you to come and work my company. Wow. What did Garrett, Garrett stayed as a musician or what did he wind up doing? No, no, he left after about a year to go work with his father and became a, you know, very successful entrepreneur. Wow, dude, the, he had a confession. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? That's like insane. A, death, a deathbed confession. I mean, that's the way it probably should be done. I mean, I, it's so, so what, tell me a little bit about, first of all, all the, are you going to tell me that all of you guys were, were at Columbia or did you just sort of meet? Everybody but Henry. So there was a, clearly a lot of charisma, bravado, intelligence, street smarts. Um, obviously, you were like, "Okay, thanks, dude. Thanks for the information." But what was your what was your next step after that? I mean, he clearly didn't want. He was trying to just give you guys, you know, just totally. Uh, yeah, but I mean, they came back for the next night, and there was just at some at some point there was no denying what was going on. So William Morris ended up being our agency. <clears throat> this is really, you know, I, I'm just going to... So anyway, this is like, what's going on is, from our perspective, seems like it's making some sense, but it's totally crazy. It's insane. We, we had no experience. Um, hardly anybody had ever played in a band before. Um, there we are, all of a sudden, you know, the idea when you're playing live is you start in clubs, and then you get some experience, and you start to understand how to project a, a club with 100 people in it. And then, you know, you do that for a couple of years, and then you graduate at some point to 1,000-seaters or 2,000-seaters, and you learn how to, you know, be on stage in an audience that big. And then after a while, you know, if you're good enough, you sell enough records, you learn how to be a legitimate headliner and how to play well in front of a lot of people. <laughs> we just did it overnight. Boom. You and went from you went from club dates to stadiums, basically. Yeah, I mean, we went to club dates to playing in Woodstock, and I don't know four. No, I mean, we went to hey, let's put this together for one night to Woodstock in four months. Hey, let's just do this for a fun and one night, and then you're in, in Woodstock. Um, I mean, Jimmy was a doo-wop fanatic. I mean, you can you was it that I don't. I just want to be very clear. I am not an aficionado of Sean and I mean, even though 
you sold. No, you don't have to be. Yeah, but I, I'm trying to figure out. Like, it's just so fascinating because you talk about. I, I love the story about uh, Three Dog Night being like, ah, oh, we should not follow them, and Can Heat's like, probably just play a couple tunes and get out of here. And I'm that's blew me away because the only time that Billy Cobham told me that the Mahavishnu Orchestra, which is, you know, a total instrumental band, uh, nobody wanted to close for them. Guys like Zappa would not do it. A lot of ego involved. They didn't want to be embarrassed. There were only two cats that would open and close for the Mahavishnu Orchestra. One was Edgar Winter's White Trash. He was also a Woodstock. And the other one was Solo Taj telling stories and playing Dobro. So, you know, I'm trying to figure out what it was, and I'd like you to talk to younger generations as well, like, what was so mind-blowing about Shanana that intimidated the crap out of pretty legitimate rock and blues bands? Well, look, first of all, um, what we were doing, although it sounds kind of cheesy and silly, it, uh, 1969 was kind of revolutionary. Well, well, okay, let's talk about that. What was revolutionary at that time? Well, the idea of doing fifth—I mean, everybody in the music business certainly was trying to forget that the 1950s ever happened. <laughs> right, I dig. I dig. And sociologically, right? You know, I do well, absolutely like, sociologically. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this is like right in the middle of the Vietnam War. Um, there's, you know, the civil rights movement is totally blowing up. Um, there's like riots in the streets in 1968. Wow. Um, riots in Chicago. Um, there have been all of these political assassinations. Things are like superly heavy heated, heavily heated politically. And all of a sudden, here's this group coming out, like dressed like people from 15 years before that. And, uh, you know, doing something totally unexpected, singing songs that, I mean, I remember the first time we played Teen Angel at the Fillmore, there were just these like, I was looking at the faces out there and just slap jawed disbelief at first. <laughs> like, I can't believe they're doing that. So you, I want to be clear. It was it was danceable music. You guys were good-looking cats with very flashy dress, singing about a time that was basically people wanted to thought was dead and buried, but doing it in a very hip kind of way. Um, yeah, and like for people like Jimmy and Janice and Jerry Garcia. And all of these musicians that were much better musicians than we ever were, um, just loving us because it was the music that they grew up on. And everybody loves the music they grew up on. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, somebody my age or somebody, you know, 30 years younger listening to uh, N.W.A. It's just the music that people grows up, grew up on it has an enormous emotional attraction. But at no time, you, I mean, even though, so you guys were having like uh, talks about like, you weren't into having being a, 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 having a nostalgia trip. You wanted to put something contemporary on it, but at least the, 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 t- the messages in the songs harken back to that time. Is that you weren't doing, yeah, yeah you weren't doing covers of 50 tunes. 50s tunes. No, we, we were doing covers of the 50s tunes. Oh my like God, was, this is so beyond, this it. is so we legendary. staging it with something else, you know? So it was always sort of treading the line between 
homage and adoration on the one hand and and poking fun on the other hand. Yeah, I can see why all those cats like Janice and Jerry, man, they, they must have just eaten it up. And beyond that, they just... Um, <clears throat> were there songs that... Um, that you would leave the head of the tune and uh, and Jocko, basically you guys would, would there was there times for people to stretch out and riff or were were you basically playing? No, everything was like very very tight. Oh, uh, this is so classic. So you were doing like three or four minute things, uh, and like one after another after another with hardly a word in between. With so one of the things, so there was this older brother of one of the guys in the group who had, was a graduate student in, in theater and had all these ideas about how you entertain. Right. And, um, and I remember he had these little homilies. And one of them was, I can't believe it, this is 54 years now ago, and I still remember this. One yeah. of them was the, the distinction between Cantonese food and Japanese food. Cantonese and Japanese. It's a pretty yes. And yeah. his notion was that Cantonese food, like all of the dishes, who knows whether this is true or not, but this is how he presented <laughs> it: that all of the dishes have a very similar taste and texture, hmm. and you can sort of throw them together, and they work very well together. Japanese food, on the other hand, everything has a different texture, a different taste, a different feel, a different look. So we were going to be more like Japanese food than Cantonese food. <laughs> and so every song, there would be changes in the, the way that we would look. Um, there would be different lineups. Somebody else would come out and sing. You know, just we're constantly in motion. Interesting. So That's fast. So you, it was almost like a, you had a deep bench. I mean, you were bringing cats. out. It was just a revolving door of musicians. There was no real... Yeah. I mean, it's like nobody would ever sing lead on two songs in a row would would people sing lead on different tunes each night or were people generally no, no, had their own were, no there were just you know people sang leads on the same songs every night right and we're just you know and, and the idea was that you weren't allowed to sing from behind an instrument so Jocko for example would come up and sing a couple of songs a night and someone else would go play the drums and somebody else would move over like the pianist would play the drums and someone would go over and play the piano. This is, I mean, you definitely weren't Cantonese food. Much more. No, no. Yeah. And we would rehearse entire sets from the moment we came out to the moment we left. We would just run the whole thing. How did like you, my, how did you, how quickly did you guys become, I don't want to say stars, but like, I've just seen, you know, when I've talked to Larry Coriel, rest in peace, Michael Shreve, a lot of these guys, you know, they were seeing a lot of their friends get very wealthy overnight and mm -hmm. and and become sort of uh, get caught up in the excesses of that quote unquote rock star life, and they saw a lot of their friends being roadkill. I just wonder how you dealt with fame. I mean, it's it's a very fascinating thing because. After Shanana, Elia Khan, I mean, it was lawyer time, you know, pretty much, you know? Like, yeah, it, it took a while. It did take, no, I'm saying, but like, I mean, it's just, can you talk, I mean, were you, how long did the disbelief, I think it was, it's good to be in shock and disbelief, but when that wore off and you guys started to make a lot of dough, 
Uh, well, how, first of all, we, we never made a lot of dough. You never made it because there were too many cats in the band, right? There were people <laughs> in the group, and we didn't write our own songs. So I do. This is sick. You were getting a little bit of money for the gig, and that was it. I love it. Yeah. Oh, my God. And, and everybody else but me was still going to college. This so, is insane. I mean, I remember one particular evening in the, uh, at the Fillmore West, there was like one big dressing room that everybody shared. And then, you know, sort of little places to change. Sure. And I, and I remember, like, my, like all sorts of debauchery going on in this room. And my guys were, like, hunkering down, busy studying Kierkegaard because they had to, you know, fly back <laughs> They're to trying to pass the, the final exam. Final exams, yeah. Um, so, so, you're, so there was no... So, explain the situation. I mean, there are... You didn't, you never got like super wealthy, but you guys were living. I mean, the cost of living was not that intense back then, so you must have been no. doing okay. We're doing okay, but not making very much, but living the dream for sure. Living the dream. I mean, did you feel, can you talk about, I mean, I know like Sly Stone went on at Woodstock at like three in the morning and there were cats like holding up the floorboards so they would, because there was a monsoon that came in that night. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, Santana, the weather held up, and quite frankly, that kind of put Santana, no one had ever, people were hip to Afro-Cuban jazz, they had never really right. heard Latin rock before. Talk, oh, I'll tell you about our Woodstock please, experience, yeah. because it was not what we expected. So we were supposed to go on Sunday afternoon, right after Joe Cocker played. And I remember getting to the Performers Hotel on Saturday morning, about 9 o'clock in the morning, and crazy scene, as you can imagine. And, Ugh. you know, just a ton of musicians and a ton of their friends and a bunch of Hells Angels. And there was a very straight-laced wedding at this hotel that had been booked long before Woodstock was on the, the map. <laughs> and the angels decided that they should all kiss the bride. Oh, no. And who was to say no, you know? Oh, my. No, no one's going to stop If it. anybody had said no, Altamont would have happened, you know, a month earlier. That's right. That's right. So, um, so there was all this craziness, and they had messed up the hotel reservations and didn't have our hotel rooms. However, there were a bunch of musicians who were trapped at the site, which was probably 10 miles away, and couldn't get back to their hotels. So they put us up in hotel rooms, and I remember my girlfriend and I were put in um, Grace Slick and Paul Kantner's room. <laughs> and, and Suzanne, my old girlfriend, spent most of the evening trying on Grace Slick's outfits. I don't blame which her. Were, which were, uh, yeah, which were great. So in any case, they flew us in on Sunday morning. Um, Cocker played, destroyed the place, just epic performance. And it started raining. And it rained for several hours. They shut the festival down for a while. And then they started up finally, you know, probably early evening as it was getting dark. And, oh, uh, no, you're not going on next. You know, whoever it is, Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young want to go on. So they went on. You're going on after them. And then it was, no, you're not going after them. Blood, Sweat & Tears wants to go on. Whoever it was, there was this long line of artists that wanted to go home. And who the hell was Sean Anata, you know, say no. Hmm. So we kept getting pushed back and back and back and back and back. 
I was on the side of the stage. I mean, I got a chance to stand about 10 feet from Steve Stills when Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young were playing, which was pretty fucking cool. Unreal. So finally, you know, it was, it was, what was left was us and Jimi Hendrix. And I would imagine that Jimmy's agents probably fought to get him to close the festival because it seemed like a great idea at the time. But not such a great idea when, you know, we got weather like that. After four days of insanity, yeah. 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 So it was him and us, and if he had decided to be a dick, he would have gone on, and they, we probably never would have gone on. But, you know, he was nice enough, and we'd, you know, we'd been hanging out with him for two weeks at this club in New York. So we, it's not like we were best friends or anything, but we knew each other and liked each other. And he was nice enough to say, hey, let me go on. So... I think the sun was coming up just about the time we got on stage. And I remember I looked out and there was nobody there. You know, I mean, it's not like there was nobody there, but. Well, it was, you know, so this was already Monday morning. It's Monday morning. And if you remember the sh the scenes from the Woodstock album of Jimmy playing to a hill of mud and nobody there. <laughs> so that, that's basically what we played to. So I was just completely crushed. Because oh. this was our big chance to go from, you know, a club band that a couple hundred people had ever heard of to, you know, to something significant. And it was, you know, completely screwed by the weather. So we sounded horrible. You know, we've been up all night, voices ravaged. Um, and we played for, I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes and got off. And I was just inconsolably bummed until I started hearing about what Woodstock was beginning to mean as an event. And then I got gradually less bummed, and then the movie came out, and all of a sudden, you know, what what had seemed like a disaster was actually a triumph. <clears throat> I just didn't realize it at the time. Well, I want I, this, okay. Uh, we're going to have to do set two, man, because I, I, we've already been cooking for 50 minutes here. And we have okay. a lot, but... Um, okay, so you're, it's, it, to me, you were bummed because you wanted to play to legions of people. I mean, you, yeah. you, you wanted to rock, but yeah. this, but how quickly was it evident that, that, I mean, we didn't have the internet. There was no instantaneous information. What was, I mean, it sounds, uh, obvious, but it really isn't now because the second wood, the second Woodstock was such a disaster what was, I mean, I just talked to Wavy Gravy this morning. You know, what was the significance? How quickly did you learn and start to feel that this was a cosmic, social, significant event? In the, in the car on the way home. Oh, my. Just, like it was on the radio? People were talking? Oh, yeah. It was, a, it was the lead story all over the country. And it was the lead story in the newspapers. And it kept being for several days after that. Wow. Wow. And, uh, wow. No, it was big stuff, and then the movie came out, and then it was, you know, cemented. And, you know, all these years later, both of my daughters watched the movie in their eighth grade American history class. Is Shauna not featured in the movie? Was, were the film running at that time, or was it, were they... Yeah. And so you and guys are part... The way, we, the way we heard the story, I mean, there are a lot of artists, uh, you know, way, way, way bigger than yeah. we ever were who didn't end up in the movie. And some of them, for financial reasons, 
they wanted to get paid well and they were only offering union scale. And some of them, because the movie was just too damn long, and we were, you know, from what I was told, we were going to get cut. And they started showing different versions to focus groups. And, you know, the, our little segment went over extremely well, and they decided to keep us in. Oh, uh, Mike, you didn't, pl- you didn't clam it up that bad, obviously. They got the good part. Yeah. That's so beautiful, man. And so your daughters get to watch that movie in their eighth grade history class? Yeah. Oh my God. So this was being covered on the three major networks for several several days after this. Yeah. On TV. The the funny thing is that it's. I mean, there were a lot of festivals that year and the year before and the year after. And I remember just I moved about a year ago and I was going through some old memorabilia and I came upon. Um, the program when we played the Fillmore, which was, I don't know, two or three weeks, four weeks before Woodstock. Yeah. And I was just sort of thumbing through it, and there was an advertisement for the Atlantic City Pop Festival in 1969. And I looked at the roster of artists playing, and it's virtually identical to the roster at Woodstock. You know, maybe two or three differences. And who the hell even remembers that there was a 1969 Atlantic City Pop Festival much less that it had any significance. So the same, basically the same artist, and one of them, you know, disappears from consciousness, and the other one becomes a cultural icon 50-some-odd years later. Yeah, I think, uh, so it was a multi, the Atlantic City Pop Fest was multi-day. I can't see, there was no way. Yeah, yeah, so that, nobody nobody remembers that. I mean, I just think the, the the insanity of having, no real security. The people were just so, uh, even through all the um, horrible weather and insanity, I mean, pretty pretty well behaved. And then you just, looking back on it, having so many incredible artists showing up, you know, it's just so, it, it's so, it seems so innocent. And yet it, it was one of the cultural, I, I think of like Isle of Wight. I'm not sure if you where what other festivals did you guys play any other festivals in your career with Sean and I that that were memorable? Um, like as a one time thing that just sort well, of I mean, just out. like before, yeah. yeah, I mean, as outside of Woodstock, I, I have to believe you probably. Um, well, first of all, did you have a record deal at that point? I guess you must have. Yes. Okay. Yes. But you would say that that. But we didn't have a record out yet. We were still in the process. We just started recording what was to be our first. Album. All right, so let's just let's put a button in this. I'll we'll let's set up a time to do set two. It's such a good, such an honor to talk to you, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm chuckling. Thank you very much for saying that. Hey, man, it was a ball, man. We'll do it again. Good, you got it. All right, Elliot. Cheers, man. Bye. Bye.